your body is really good at finding solutions, whether they're efficient or not. That was Kevin Carr, and this is the Prime Podcast, where we help you find your prime. Let's get it. Yeah. You ready? <laughs> hey. Let's go. Bet. And welcome back to another episode of the Prime Podcast, where we do our best to help you find your prime. Today, we have another special guest, Kevin Carr. And Kevin has done a ton of stuff in functional training space, uh, from being a a manager at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning out in the Boston area. He is a co-founder of the Certified Functional Strength Coach, which is a certification for aspiring strength coaches to learn more about functional strength and conditioning. He is a co-founder of Movement as Medicine, which is a massage therapy and other uh, practitioner, and also just all-around strength and conditioning guy who knows a ton of stuff about a lot of different things. And he also recently just came out with a book called Functional Training Anatomy. So, Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me, Anthony. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, for folks who don't know, you know, other than my little intro there, let's take a you know step back. Kind of, how did you get into the training space and what did it come from? How did it evolve to get to where you are now? Which is kind of like, you know, you're being from Mike Boyle's facility. If you look at the track record of a lot of those guys, like coaching tree, they like to do that in like professional football. If you look at Mike's coaching tree, a lot of guys are doing some outstanding stuff from that, from that place. And you stayed there and just built upon what, what was already there and expanded it a, a ton. So let's, I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, this has been an amazing place for me to build a career and an amazing group of coaches to to learn from and grow up around and continue to be surrounded by. I mean, if you look at, like you said, the coaching tree in the names, there's, I mean, we have alumni in every professional sport, in Olympic sports, in a number of different collegiate institutions, as well as a lot of private gym owners like, like yourself, right? Yeah. And for me, that's honestly been like an accelerant. I always say for our coaches here, it, it provides a really good environment to learn from. So like first and foremost, I would say I'm, I'm very blessed and fortunate to to be in an environment that that you know encourages growth and, and has connected me with a lot of great people. And I say I was I was very lucky that this was really like my first real job in strength and conditioning as we know it. Um, oh. I walked into the door here at about 20, 19, 20 years old. And uh, now I'm 33. And I'm still here. So it's it's obviously been a good place for me to be. I, I ended up here. I was a freshman at UMass Amherst. I, I went to school for kinesiology. I kind of found a love in weight training and, and things of that nature and exercise, like a lot of people, through an injury in high school athletics, right? I had, I had injured my shoulder. I had a really good rehabilitation experience, honestly. And I, I found an enjoyment of lifting weights in that experience. I was already into working out, but that kind of made me look into it more. And that's what kind of piqued my interest in pursuing exercise science and, and strength and conditioning. And I had a, a guy that I worked with at Gold's Gym. His name's Clark Evans. He was a private contractor. I was working at the front desk, like 19-year-old meathead kid that age. And he was doing, you know, Mike Boyle-esque training. He was doing single leg squats. He was doing hang cleans. He was doing stuff that looked athletic. He didn't look like me right. uh, pulling the stuff out of the muscle and fitness. Right. 
And uh, I said, you know, where'd you learn this? And he had done a mentorship at MBSC with Mike back when Mike was at BU. And he said, you know, you should really look into it. If you're going to get into this field, it, it would probably be really good to look into an internship. So I was lucky I interned early. I was a freshman in college and I did an internship and I just kept coming back. Like I, I, it's like a stray dog that kept returning to the place <laughs> to fetch you. I kept coming back on over summer break and spring break. I would, I would come and give hours. And, and then because of that, I had a full-time job when I graduated. Right. And like like you mentioned, the, the the coaches that were here, I realized I was like, I'm surrounded by the right people. Right when I started, Jonas Buchan was here. And then he up and was gone and took a job at the Atlanta Falcons right after. And I thought to myself, oh, wow, he got a assistant strength and conditioning job at the Atlanta Falcons. Like, and he was in his 20s. And I thought like, oh, this, this is probably a good place to be. And yeah. I've been fortunate to be surrounded by, you know, Nicole Rodriguez, Jamie Rodriguez, uh, Devin McConnell, a lot of these coaches who have been here and, and now are have prominent jobs have, have been great people who would influence me and and you know and uh, it, time flies and now now i've been here for about 13 years heading into the 2021 summer here so it's it's been a, a great experience yeah that's awesome and i think that one of my kind of things when i look back at it i i, I took a little different path to get to where i am i, I started out we you know studying similar I, I studied physical education and then i became a physical education teacher and we met probably, I don't even know, maybe like six years ago at, a, at mm-hmm. the CFSC at, a, at a, the Form Better uh, training summit there, the three-day summit. We did it the day before. And uh, I kind of went around a different path. And one of the things that I regret the most is that I never did some sort of internship. Uh, I think you learn the most in those settings. And it, I, I, whenever I people ask me about going to the, down this field a little bit, that's kind of my my first inclination is go find somebody to intern with and, and whether that's with you guys or exos or any of those guys who are doing something great in the in the field find somewhere to internship and that's when you're going to learn the most if you can manage to spend your summer there or do whatever and i know you guys probably have a pretty is it a pretty intensive interview process to get into that internship program yeah i mean our our business couldn't run without interns quite honestly like we really do rely on them especially in the summer um, we have a high volume of athletes, and it's the only way that we hire in our business. We don't hire outside of the internship. We don't really take applications. We don't really get people. I mean, we do get people applying, but we want everyone to go through the internship process. And for us, that allows us essentially a three-month interview with that individual. We have, You can really figure out how somebody works and, and what they're really all about uh, when they're working long days and coaching all the time. And you, you can see them for months at a time. Like anybody can interview well. Anyone can turn in a good resume. But the internship really lets me know, like, does this person fit on our team from a cultural standpoint? Do they, do they fit with us? Do they work the way that we, we want them to work? And, and more importantly, are they going to like it? Right. I, we've had plenty of people who realize, like, oh, this isn't for me. And yeah. that's ju- just as valuable for them as well. So it's really important. We get a lot of applications Um, in the summer. uh, We'll get upwards of like about hundred to 200 apps for the summer internship. And it depends 15 to 20. Wow. Yep. And so, you know, we have uh, two internship coordinators now, Pat Stefanski and Craig Seidenglantz, and they'll, they'll go through, review every application, do all the references. They do phone calls if they can't come in in person for interviews we have in their application process, they have to submit a video if they can't come in in person, explaining you know why they want to work here, what their interests are, what why they are, want to come to MBSC. And that gives us an idea, not just about their enthusiasm, but um, their energy level, right? I, I could tell right off the bat in a video 
lots of times what this person's energy is like. We say, can you submit like a three to five minute video? And there's some that really keep your attention. Like I could think of some of the interns videos we have have been amazing. Like I was laughing. They were humorous. They took time to edit it. And that to me right there shows me that they care and that they're demonstrating their personality. And those, those, some of those people I think back on were some of our best employees and some of our, our best hires. I always use my friend, Aaron Swalson, who has a gym out in California now, his internship, like he, I, I should actually send him the video. It's hilarious. It, it, <laughs> I, I was like crying laughing. It was so funny. And he was honestly one of our best personal training coaches because people loved it. In, in reality, people come to train, uh, not necessarily because of the training, but because of the people, right? And so we're, we're always hiring off personality and seeing, seeing where they fit. And from the internship and from the intern's perspective, I should say, I think it's such a valuable experience to have mentors. Like you said, you always recommend people, hey, go find an internship. Going finding people that are doing what you want to do and trying to model your behavior and your actions and, and the things that you learn after them, I, I think it's it's invaluable in, in in having that experience and especially at a young age where you can really devote yourself to learning. You not, don't necessarily have as many bills or responsibilities or things pulling at you. I think about when I was like nineteen. This was I, I could put everything I had into coaching all day, learning, reading, taking notes. In, in getting better. And, and that's a really kind of important time in your life to be able to devote to that. So, so I always say same thing, go find somewhere where you can get some practical experience, even if it's for little or no money at the time, it, the payoff is usually 10 X uh, from what you put in. Yeah. And we talked about it a few weeks ago because Tori is in college right now. She's going to be going into her senior year. We were talking about the importance of, you know, like if we, if I were structuring a, a curriculum for a strength coach or a physical education teacher, anybody, I would, I would put internship and those sort of things first. And then, like you said, like you can go, go in right away and be like, is this something I want to do? Either, you know, it right away, you know, if you did a three month internship with you guys, you would know, okay, this is good. Or no, I don't want, this is not a good fit instead of potentially going to school for three and a half years and doing your internship last and then realizing like, Hey, this is not what I was expecting. This is not what I want to do. Exactly. And we've had uh, a lot of second career interns, people who, you know, had careers in business or marketing or finance, and then came and interned with us and have become great coaches and have discovered that they want to do something else. So, I mean, a good example I have is like Steve Bigelow, who's, I mean, he writes all our athlete program. He coaches, he's ostensibly the face of, of MBSC on the floor for a lot of the athletes. He went to school. He went to UMass Amherst a few years later after me, but he was in school for business and finance. And he was working at, I think, Fidelity. And he wanted to do an internship while he was there in our office, in our business and marketing. We take usually a business and marketing intern as well. And uh, then he was there for a few hours and he was in the office and he looked on the floor. He said, can I actually intern out there? Instead. <laughs> and uh, we said, yeah, we're like, All right, I mean, if you want, we'll always take another coach. And he, and he was a really good athlete. He would, to, to be fair, he was a division one track and field athlete. So he could hop right in. And his father uh, was a, a client at the gym for a long time. And now, I mean, he, he completely changed his career. And, and it's been one amazing for us. He's, I mean, hugely. I, could, I couldn't imagine him in, in an office, in a business office. Yeah. His personality he said he was bouncing off the walls. He couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. his personality <laughs> wouldn't fit that. And so, and, and he found something that fit him. So I, we, when we take interns, I don't necessarily always pick them based off the resume, right? Like he didn't have a strength and conditioning background, but I would say like, if your personality fits and the enthusiasm's there, we can, we can figure out the coaching part usually. 
Yeah, I know Mike. Mike has always talks about in his in his presentations to to hire a certified nice person, and then everything else we could figure out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, what is what, can you what is movement as medicine? So, we talked a lot about uh, Boyle, Mike Boyle, strength and conditioning. What is movement as medicine? That's your that's your baby, right? Is that yeah, right? yeah. So yeah. it's funny. I just realized it was we've been in business for about eight years now. It's funny. It's funny. I, you always say like, oh, five years, six years, and I just saw it eight years. Um, Brendan and I, Brendan Rerick and I, we went to UMass Amherst together, right? And I was working at. Uh, Mike Boyle strength and conditioning. He was actually interning and working at another competitor gym down the street while him and I and Ana Taco uh, were all living together at the time. Right. And so he, and he didn't like his job. <laughs> and eventually he kept coming over. I'll, I'll tell this whole story. because it's good. He kept coming over and like hanging out and working out with me and then going back to his place, working out with me and going back to his place. And we eventually hired him. Right. Which was great. And so we were working here together and then we decided like we both wanted to go back to massage school. I remember I played with the idea of going to PT school. I spoke with some PTs and some, some, some massage therapists and the, the, the common conversation I had was like, what niche do you want to work in? Do you mm-hmm. want to work in like classic, like inpatient PT? Do you want to go through all those rotations or do you just want to be able to provide manual therapy to help these people move and feel better that you're already working with and build like a side business with that. And that was really kind of what I realized I wanted to do. And that allowed me also to continue working at MBSC and and do so full time and do it and be able to pay for school on my own dime. Uh, more importantly, from a financial standpoint, I didn't have to, you know, take out a bunch of loans to go to a physical therapy program. So Brendan and I went back to massage school and did night classes. And right when we got out, we opened Movement as Medicine, which is a massage and, and movement therapy clinic that's actually attached right next door to, to Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. And we were very fortunate that at the time that we were finishing school, MBSC expanded. And so there was some extra office space available that they weren't really sure what they were going to do with yet. So Brennan and I walked right in the office and said, how much to rent it? <laughs> we didn't have a business yet. We didn't know how to run a business, but we knew we'd figure it out if we could just secure the space. And so we did. We we have uh, three treatment rooms, a little warm up and uh, exercise area with flooring and everything. And so what I do is I, I essentially I work both as a strength and conditioning coach, personal trainer, and a massage therapist uh, over the course of the day. I'll see I'll work at all three kind of settings. And what I do is I generally work with people who have um, stiffness and, and movement issues that are kind of keeping them from either training the way they want or living their daily activities playing whatever recreational sports they want. And I'll provide, you know, manual therapy interventions kind of in that gray area between physical therapy and strength and conditioning. There's obviously a certain niche and a certain scope of practice that I work in that kind of fits in between there. Usually people dealing with chronic issues that could be improved with uh, some sort of manual therapy and exercise intervention. And then my goal is always to trend back towards getting them back into the training program and getting them as active as possible and kind of working in conjunction with whoever their coach is out on the floor or if they're training somewhere else working with their coach there. Yeah. I think that's like you said, that's a great a great area avenue to get into that position because a lot of the physical, you know, you hear at least from my perspective, all the physical therapy students that I talk to or people who are new to practicing physical therapy, it's not what they thought it was going to be. And they don't really get to actually help people because those outpatient clinics are, they're just factories and they just run through people. 
Whereas as a massage therapist, I've never gone to, you know, you get that out, like the, at least the perception from outside is that you're getting that hour time with that person and you're going to get a massage. You're not going to be in a clinic with six other people where the, where the PT might spend five or 10 minutes with you and then you're getting shuffled through the, the process. Yeah. And I want to be able to devote my full time and my full hour to that individual. And what I tend to find with the people that I see is I'm dealing with a lot of people who have kind of chronic ongoing issues. And a lot of times when they go to some of these more traditional physical therapy backgrounds, these people are more suited to deal with immediately post-surgery, uh, neurological, but they're not nearly often as suited to deal with chronic issues that might be related to capacity or joint range of motion. So for instance, I had an uh, individual this morning, he was a, a former Olympic figure skater and he has you know, this chronic neck pain from coaching. Like he coaches pair figure skating. So he's often doing lifts and lifting up other athletes. And so like what we've been working on is obviously the manual therapy around his neck and around his shoulder, improving shoulder mobility, improving shoulder stability. And, and now I have him in a training program where most of our time now in our appointments look a lot less like me doing massage work and much more like he's doing just exercise, targeted exercise with me. And then I'm building out a program for him. So it's also kind of about kind of clearing the misconceptions for people if they think they're just going to get regular massage therapy with me. Yeah, It's not a very spa-like environment if you come into my office. You know, it's much more of an athletic environment. And I do do just general massage for some people if they're, if they're looking for that. But most of the time, it's very uh, prescriptive and targeted towards getting them exercising again. And, and that's really the niche that, that we work in. Yeah. So you might do, for example, like some manual release to get their neck working a little bit and then get out on the floor and then do some stability and strengthening exercises for their neck and shoulder to kind of make sure that stuff sticks a little bit. Right. Exactly. And I always tell them the magic is made in the, the active stuff that you're going to do. I, I, I might put you in a better position neurologically or, or from a sensitization standpoint to be able to do those things by making you feel better. But I'm not going to be there to rub your neck all the time. Exactly. <laughs> you won't? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You gotta be, you gotta build the systems and the capacity to be able to go out and do the things you want to do. And, and uh, we've kind of established that is is what we do. So a lot of our clients come kind of looking for that specifically, which is nice. Yeah, and then it, in that same token, I did want to talk about this, and it kind of segued perfectly about like the importance or the use of foam rolling to do something. Obviously, not as targeted, not as specific as what you might be doing in the clinic, but the the purpose of foam rolling and then the differences between kind of like opening up that, that window and having some increased flexibility or range of motion and then how those things carry over like the flexibility, mobility, and like having active range of motion. And can you just talk about like the differences between just the terminology wise so folks can understand the difference between, you know, like a passive flexibility active and like what foam rolling or that manual therapy might do to allow us to then create that stickiness, create that stuff home. Cause like you said, you're not going to be there. We're not, someone's not always going to be there to rub your neck and rub your shoulders to loosen things up. So how do we make it more sticky? Yeah. It's funny. Like manual therapy and foam rolling has gone through that, like uh, pendulum of acceptance in strength conditioning. Like a lot of things go through, like when it first comes out, it's all the craze. Everybody wants to foam roll everything and massage everything. Um, and then, you know, more research comes out. And then the other side of the coin is people say it's useless and it's a waste of time. And, and as most things, the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle. Sure. Right. And it's all about when you're going to use the intervention and what you want it to be, what you want it for. And I think it's important to realize that you know, the majority of the effects that we get with um, instrument assisted massage or foam rolling or regular manual therapy is neurological in nature, 
right? It's not that we're, you know, the common terminology you always hear when people say they foam roll or get massages, like they're trying to break up adhesions, yeah, break get up rid the of these man. knots, right? And it, it, it brings this physical, it gives this idea to the client that you're actually making a physical change to the tissue, right? And with, they use that terminology because it makes sense to them because the nervous system is complicated. But in reality, when you see these results that happen so quickly, like, hey, you foam roll and you feel, move and feel a little better. The only thing that can re react that quickly is your nervous system, right? <laughs> and if it can react that quickly to improve things, it can also tighten things back up that quick. So I always say we have a neurological window of opportunity. We've taken down the sensitivity of the nervous system. So some of that stiffness or soreness goes away uh, transiently. Um, we've reduced the resting tone of the tissue so the joint can move better passively, like I could move your shoulder for you. Uh, but for you to maintain that range of motion and for you to utilize it under higher stress conditions, you have to condition it in that way. So what I always tell people is like, like if I work on your hip, right. And we get done, you're like, okay, it feels better. And you have a little bit more hip flexion. You have a little bit of more hip external rotation. I want to go right from there and make you have to actively use it. So we're going to do like an active external rotation stretch where you're contracting and relaxing and pulling in. Then we're going to go in a situation where you have to use it. Like I'm going to make you go do a single leg deadlift, or we're going to work on squatting and, and building strength and capacity in that position. So we can you know, hit the save button on the document, so to speak. Right. And lots of times if we're looking to improve range of motion, it's, you know, one of those two steps forward, one step backwards types of situations. Right. Like they'll we'll, we'll improve it. They'll get a little stronger. They come back in and they're better than they were the first time, but they might not be as good as they were when they left. And we want to continue to move that forward as we improve the capacity of the client to to maintain that range of motion and, and getting them to kind of understand that process and how the onus is also on them to do exercises not with me or, or when they're in their training program is kind of how we ultimately move forward. Cause I would say, I don't, I don't want to be treating the same thing with you uh, for months at a time. Ideally I want you to be out there training and only have to come back and see me, uh, you know, periodically if you need me. For sure. And Sam actually laughed while you, when you said, you know, you should be working on it on your own because we tell people that all the time and, you know, in a gym and the different things like you, you have all these different opportunities. Uh, people come to maybe two or three times a week and they, they might do something, but if you're not, outside walking and, you know, being active and doing different things. Some of those things, like you said, they're going to, they might continue. And I love to hit the save button. That's a great, great way mm -hmm. to think about it. And, 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 and uh, like, I think part of that is because so many of these clients have been conditioned with the traditional physical therapy model, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's all passive, lots of stim, lots of ice, lots of uh, passive stretch. Hey, I'm going to go see this client, do this exercise. Uh, and I'll come back in like 15 minutes, right? And the fact that, I mean, it's an insurance-based model. So there's a lot of the times there's no skin in the game for them as for sure. far as the investment goes. And it, uh, for better or worse, like we, uh, I run a cash-based model, one, because I'm a massage therapist, but two, because I think that they realize like I'm investing myself into getting this treatment or this training. And it, it's, it's not like they don't, like they, they're putting their time and money into it. I always stress them, like, I, I want you to have to make the smallest investment possible. And to do that, you're going to have to, you know, invest some of your, you know, some of your energy and your time to do the things that uh, I'm asking you to do. Yeah. My friend, Sean, do you know, I, I don't I feel like you guys have crossed paths at some time, the movement maestro. Oh yeah. Yep. Sean, Sean so she's one of my best friends and she always talks about if, when, when people pay, they pay attention, you know, like when Absolutely. people, like when you got to pay money and you're paying out of your pocket, then, you know, if you're paying for a hundred dollar an hour, you know, massage therapy 
pseudo personal training session, then you're going to pay attention. You're going to do the thing like as opposed to like your insurance, just covering it. You go because you have a script for 12 personal training sessions and you just kind of go through the motions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you got to have some skin in the game. Yeah. So one of the things that just moving on, moving along into that next part, uh, just going right through your book, honestly, and where it talks about talking about people who are inefficient and, and have compensatory patterns and how they relate to other things potentially happening. So Sam coaches high school girls lacrosse also um, as one of her side gigs here. And one of her athletes, I teach physical education at part time. We're all over the place. One of her athletes is in my class and she complains of back pain when she throws a lot or when she, you know, she plays lacrosse when she throws a lot. So I had her do a little like overhead mobility screen, find out she has really poor you know, shoulder flexion and shoulder and thoracic rotation. So obviously I told her like, that's why probably your back is hurting because every, if you throw the ball a hundred times in a game, you're cheating from your lower back. And then she was kind of mind blown a little bit high school, you know, high school age. So just talk about these different things and maybe the joint by joint way, or just how these compensatory patterns contribute and why and how we would tackle them in that kind of movement prep and different things that you might see and address in your practice. Yeah. And I mean, what I always tell people is like everything we do has a cost, like exercise is a stress and every, and every movement we do has a cost of movement and we want to make it as efficient as possible. And I always say, it's not that there's a right or a wrong way, right? You see a lot of extreme ways that people move and there's a lot of variability in how people move when we watch them. But when someone comes in with a complaint, like the one that you just referenced, I want to, like, like you said, you real simple. You just kind of looked at how all the joints moved and, and how that athlete moved. And you could see, well, this might not be the most efficient way for you to do things. If you're trying to do perform an action that's primarily shoulder focused, like, like throwing and that arm can't get into positions to absorb and adapt to stress in, in the joint positions that you want. Your body is really good at finding solutions, whether they're efficient or not, right? At the end of the day, we just want to complete whatever that motor task is and, and whether or not it costs us more as far as the joint capacity goes, or it costs us more as far as energy goes, we're, we're going to find a way to do it. And so what we want to do is take a look at all the joints that might play into a movement and say, okay, where can we improve how a joint moves so this person can be more efficient and then most importantly, so they can do it for a long period of time, whether that's over the course of a game or the course of a season, over the course of a career. So, you know, when you reference a joint by joint approach, again, I think that one of those things where people get upset about the joint by joint approach because they take it so literally and they say, oh, well, you say like the ankles are mobile and the hips are stable. The hips have to be stable or mobile to it. They all have to be stable and mobile, right? Um, but you have these predictive patterns where people tend to lose ranges of motion due to activities or due to life. And so as you referenced, lots of times you, we see these people who uh, lack shoulder flexion um, or lack thoracic extension rotation, and they're, they're going to find movement out of the next most uh, mobile segment, which is often the lumbar spine. And it could be the, said, the same thing in the hips when you see people who don't necessarily have hip flexion or extension then you ask them to squat or you ask them to run and they're going to make up a lot of that range of motion in their spine, which might not be a problem if they're not under a large amounts of stress, right? Like that individual that you referenced with the lack of shoulder flexion, if, if they weren't a throwing athlete, that might not bother them on a daily basis. They could probably go through their life without a problem. But when you start to layer lots of repetitions at high velocity or in high load, then you're going to see some sort of, uh, some sort of effect at the joint from 
the repetitive stress that, that it occurs. And I mean, we're just always trying to look for ways to improve the efficiency of whatever they're doing. For sure. And, and just talking about stress a little bit more, I remember at our CFSC, I mean, like I said, it was like six or seven years ago now. And uh, one of the things you talked about foam rolling, you know, it was a, it was, it's still kind of a hot topic, but at that time, everyone was bashing foam rolling, you know, five or six years ago. And you're like, listen, you know, if people come in with, and, they're, and they have a tough job, you know, they're, they're really stressed out and they have a really crazy job and they're having relationship problems or whatever, and their stress level is a 10, us exercising, right? Like you said, we're creating a stress on our body, whether that's playing our sport, exercising or doing anything. If I can get their stress down to an eight from foam rolling and making them feel better neurologically, then we've just created that window, like you said, that neurological window of opportunity to add our new stimulus onto that without over overdoing it on the system. Yeah. Like I always think about my clients who come in and like, we do a little breathing, we do a little rolling, we do a little stretching and their demeanor changes. Right. They they haven't had like I think about my adult group, like they haven't had a time to just sit down and quiet and relax and roll and stretch uh, outside of when they come to see us. And so I it's almost like I almost just like let it be quiet. I don't try to get them going. I don't, I don't chatter that much. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, hey, listen, like this is your only time today where it's probably going to be like this. Right. So why don't you take it and just let your nervous system relax a bit. And that can go a really long way. I think about like when I'm having a busy day. Sometimes I just go in the massage room and just like lay down for 10 minutes, right? But then I have more energy when I come out the other side. And so we're providing them that opportunity to then, you know, go out and, and be able to apply stress positively and then put them in a place where they can still adapt to it uh, rather than just kind of redlining them and, and jamming them uh, up against the limits all the time. Yeah. And because most injuries, like you said, like is, is a position where in some way you have, you've put more load on the system than you have capacity for at that particular moment in time or that particular, or at that particular place in your body. So. Absolutely. So looking at, uh, I know Mike, is, I don't know if I saw it on Instagram or something, but he's always getting so much, so much heat for like the, you should never squat. You should never do these sorts of things ever again. Type of type of mindset. Like mm-hmm. you said, the pendulum always swings so far to the side. But I thought I saw like yeah. title of an article that says bilateral things. Something bilateral is dead. I don't know if you said bilateral leg exercises are dead, and unilateral yeah. is king. Can we talk about just explain to folks like what the difference is, and then just why unilateral training has such a bigger impact, both on health and performance related as well, not just in terms of basic general fitness, but also for a performance athlete and different things like that, why that unilateral focus might be super beneficial and why people should at least incorporate it into their training in some regard. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to that idea of efficiency as humans where we're wired and structured to function unilaterally in these like contralateral patterns when we move and walk and run and jump. There's very few things in our daily life that are true, bi- truly bilateral other than a lot of the things that we do in the weight room. And so I think that our training should really, you know, look to represent in, and reflect that as best as possible. If you look at, you know, how we're neurologically wired, you know, when you look at things like the bilateral deficit, it's not a mistake that we can produce far more than 50% of the force that we can produce on two legs on one leg. Um, I mean, we're seeing people produce 75, 80% of the force um, on one leg that they can do on two legs. And so from an efficiency standpoint, if we're able to get more uh, of a force output with less overall skeletal stress or compressive load, for us, it allows our athletes to train harder, more consistently and recover more consistently and with less potential orthopedic cost. When the thing about 
bilateral lifting, the reason it's so prevalent in strength and conditioning and, and personal training is because obviously our industry is heavily influenced by the traditional strength sports, right? Powerlifting, bodybuilding, strongman are the things that have kind of opened everybody's eyes to the weight room. A big positive there, obviously. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those tools are the best suited for the average person, whether it's an athlete or gen pop in the gym. The reason powerlifting and bodybuilding prefer like very sagittal plane bilateral exercises is because there's very little variability in movement, right? And that's very positive for bodybuilding because you can maximize hypertrophy with, with less variability in how the movement uh, goes. And then obviously for powerlifting, those are the, the, the lifts that they compete in. Now, those don't necessarily always translate to making an athlete bigger, faster, stronger, or, or less likely to be injured. And they definitely don't necessarily translate to the gen pop client getting more fit. There's just more prerequisites to do a back squat well than like a goblet squat or a single leg squat. Like if I were to take a gen pop client, like they're going to have to have certain amounts of shoulder external rotation. They're going to have to have thoracic extension. They have to have bilateral hip mobility. Whereas split squat can allow some freedom for someone to learn those things. And the, the big thing, I think the, the post that you referenced was, I mean, we've always been big unilateral people um, from a spine sparing perspective and, and we saw the efficiencies, but Alex Natera's recent research that he presented at our winter seminar this past year was, was really fascinating. And he's Alex Natera, if you guys aren't familiar, is rugby strength coach and researcher out of Australia. And what they did is they broke down the segmental analysis of the body, like how much, what percentage of your weight is in your upper body and your limbs and what percentage of your weight is in your lower body limbs, right? And so about 60% of your body weight is above the waist and roughly 40% is below the waist. And so when you're doing a single leg squat, you're already lifting a higher percentage of your body weight, right? Because you're lifting the opposite leg plus your torso. Right. Um, and what they found is that a one times a 50% body weight uh, single leg squat. So I'm a 220 pound guy. If I was doing a single leg squat with 110 pounds, that's the equivalent force production of a double body weight back squat. Wow. Right. So if we're talking about efficiency standpoint, why would I not choose the more efficient option, especially if I can do it without compressive loads and people just tend to feel better. The, the majority of athletes we work with, they, they don't like back squatting, but they don't really mind single leg squatting. And then if you think about that added to the fact that we're getting multi-planar muscle development, right? You're not developing frontal and transverse plane muscles in a back squat, but you really are in a true single leg squat or a single leg deadlift. It just makes it a much more obvious choice, especially for athletic development and for, for general population. Now, when you're talking about loading a single leg squat with 110 pounds, you're talking about a rear foot elevated split squat, or are you talking a, a traditional single, like a pistol type squat? It's funny. We've actually moved away from RFEs a little bit more. I don't even know if we're going to have rear foot elevated split squats in our summer program. Oh, yeah? One from a, a COVID standpoint, we'd have to have more split squat stands yeah. out, but also because we've started to load true single leg squats and skater squats, mm -hmm. like a, a skater squat or skater deadlift uh, more heavily. And how do you, how do you um, load them? So chains, vests, and sandbags. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like we have like really heavy sandbags that, that will hold in the Zercher position yeah. and then chain like a third, we have 30 pound chains put around that will have someone kind of drip. We have, they kind of, we cover them in a fire hose and we kind of put them over their shoulders. Mm -hmm. And so like we have, I think I have, and dumbbells. I have, I, I think I posted a video of shy who works for us doing a 110 pound single leg squat with a dumbbell. Is it a skater squat or uh, is it? 
Uh, like a regular single leg oh, really? squat with, with 110 pound dumbbell and then skater squats. I think I had a video of like, I was at 64 pounds yeah. in a skater squat, but I have some videos of some, some of the, the, the pro guys doing them heavier than that. And the pro girls doing them heavier than that as well. Um, so we're just seeing that like, again, we can load these heavier than we always thought. This is something that we always thought these were like assistance exercises, yeah. right? There's a lot more potential. And we realize like, okay, if we can, uh, if you can get someone that strong, on one leg with less external load because the, the the force production the force plate data was showing them that that they're lift if you add in their body weight that they're lifting the equivalent loads and force production why would we not choose that yeah and then if you think about when we talk about being like multi multi-planar uh, a rear foot elevated mm-hmm. split squat is, is not tr- a true true unilateral exercise because you still have that back leg that folks can cheat off of when mm-hmm. we're doing those and you might run into like excessive hip extension for folks who are trying to go heavier and cheat through it. And you might, you know, run into some issues there. So you end up having a little bit extra help. Yeah. Alex actually referenced that too. And he has a cool chart actually, if you guys, well, I can send you the presentation uh, where he talks about all the different single leg variations. So uh, split squats, rear foot elevated split squats, slide board lunges, single leg squats, and skater squats in the percentage from one leg to the other based on the data that they had. And I think an RFE, was something around like 84% on the front leg. Yep. So you still got like 26% in the back yep. leg. Whereas obviously these true single leg patterns are 100% on the front leg. Sure. So I guess you could almost build them into a progression, yep. right? And kind of like work them more unilateral as you go. And, and that's kind of what we we looked for. And that's why we've actually been doing more heavily loaded slide board lunges because those were actually more heavily loaded on the front leg because you can't really push off the back leg that's sliding yeah, nearly slide as much right as out. you can off a split squat stand. Yeah. We only have one slide board. I was going to get more, but I haven't got around to it yet. So a lot of, lot of information there. A lot of information. Yeah. So I, I love all of it. And, uh, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, for, for us, like we do, you know, like adult model, we, we have a smaller, although our athlete group is, is kind of growing daily at this point and just trying to get an idea of, you know, what you guys are finding, like the best practices and, and those kind of things. So it's really great to hear. And one of the things that you, you talked about external rotation a little bit, what I'm finding, you know, when we're doing change of direction type stuff is that you have a lot of, you know, we, we, we need a lot of more internal rotation at the hip as well. And is there anything specific that you guys see or work on in terms of internal rotation? Because if you look at some of the training, obviously there's some stability there, but what about the mobility, being able to control internal rotation? And the only thing we normally kind of see it being used upon is if we're doing, let's say like a medicine ball throw, where we might get that internal rotation from the hip on the on the, the post leg. And so what, what type of things, if anything, do you guys look at when we're thinking change of direction, thinking inter- hip internal rotation to get that, so to keep that knee from having to do some of the work down the chain? Yeah. And so, I mean, change of direction and rotational power like lives in internal rotation. That's what you need to have sure. to do those things efficiently. And like you said, people tend to, when they run into trouble, you see highly rotational athletes, they tend to compensate for a lack of IR. Like I know, actually, uh, I was talking to someone about this the other day when you, they, they did this study of golfers and they find that golfers that have deficits in IR demonstrate higher amounts of uh, isolated lumbar rotation when compared to golfers who don't. When they look at golfers, uh, professional golfers, generally they have a lot of paired lumbar and hip rotation. Like there's not a lot of disassociation because they can rotate through their hips, right? right? And that's how they can generate power. Whereas when they're locked in IR, they tend to get a lot of disassociation and 
increased amounts of lumbar rotation. So it's important from a, a longevity and, and spinal health standpoint to, to look at that. And it, it can be tough because if you think about a lot of our training practices, a lot of things we do in the weight room are going to promote a lot of extension and promote, promote a lot of external rotation. Exactly. Like look at the, the way we, we trend towards things and that's how we produce power and that's great, but you have to be able to go the other way too. Even more so with us, we have a big hockey population and, and they're all extension and external rotation. They walk in with the toes yeah. out and the belly out. <laughs> um, and I just had a, a, a guy this morning, a college-aged kid, who was dealing with some hip issues. And I put him on the table, looked at his hip, and I mean, he might have been at zero for IR really? on the right side. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, uh, like nothing. I'm like, okay, well, there's the low-hanging fruit for, sure. for you because like he would he had an ongoing issue where he'd plant and feel his hip. And so – the big thing we usually when you have people with internal rotation limitations, there's is you have to address the pelvis because there's not a lot of IR to be gained in regular person. Anyways, you're not like they say 30 degrees. If you see an active athlete, I'd be happy sometimes with 10. Yeah. Uh, so I just you got to get their pelvis in a better position to let the femur move. So I'll usually uh, do some breathing work where I'm going to work on helping them kind of get their pelvis underneath them. So get them out um, of then, anterior tilt a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Where they're going to bias into extension is going to take away some of that room for them to internally rotate. If you're already relatively rotated, there's nowhere for that hip to go. Oh, right. Sense. So I'll try to get them to breathe and just kind of work on feeling their obliques, get their hips under them, and then work on drills to help them get into IR and, and just give them a little bit more. And it can be a matter of a few degrees that makes a big difference in how someone feels. Mm -hmm. I, again, I always tell these hockey players, like, you're never going to look like a yogi, and that's okay. I don't want you to. The adaptations that you have from your sport probably make you better at your sport. So like I said to this individual today, like, I'm going to work on just getting your pelvis under you a little bit. Uh, we're going to do some, a little bit internal rotate, active internal rotation work, kind of like similar to the things you see in like functional range conditioning where I'm having to press into IR and lift and kind of work on, on building a few degrees of IR. Like, and then more like kind of 90, 90 type positions. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then, um, then go do exercises where we promote it. Most importantly, like we talked about building capacity in these positions, I could work in the therapy clinic on, with it with him all day. But if he doesn't have the capacity to internally rotate when he's moving under load or in high stress, it's probably not going to be very helpful, right? So like we went out, we worked on cueing his pelvis to internally rotate over his femur, doing things like a single leg deadlift or doing like a split squat with a reach by the wall. So he could kind of feel his hip and get his pelvis over his femur. So he could use some of those internally rotating muscles to help him. So he could feel his adductor and, and feel his lateral glute kind of keeping him in those positions. So going back to the idea of multi-planar muscles, we're not going to get that in a, in a squat like in a bilateral squat, but I am going to get that if I, I cue a split squat real well, or I cue a single leg deadlift real well and kind of teach him how to load his hip into internal rotation where, where he's going to need it. Right. So, so you would cue him like to internally rotate in like a single leg deadlift? Yeah. Like for instance, so what I did uh, after I, I did some of that ground-based work with this, this guy, I, I took him up to a single leg deadlift and usually what, what do you see in like a sloppy single leg deadlift? You see a pelvis that's externally rotated on the femur, right? Yeah, because it like where where like their where their toes are facing out and they're kind of like airplane sideways, correct? Yeah, like they're like they're peeing on a fire hydrant type exactly. thing. Exactly. And so what yeah. I want to do is cue him to internally rotate his pelvis over his femur so he closes down. Yeah. Um, and that way he's effectively driving like functional internal rotation in that hip because his foot's on the ground. And having him feel the adductors and feel his lateral hip and feel his obliques kind of pulling him into that hip. Same thing with a split squat, right? And then kind of going out and cueing him when he's lifting in those same positions so that 
we're building capacity there. Um, and, and that again, like hitting the save button. And that's where I think a lot of the therapy interventions fall short. They kind of look like kind of PT or corrective exercise, but I, I, we got to continue to, I think a really good exercise selection and really good coaching usually can take care of a lot of these things. Once we kind of provide them that initial intervention to, to help them feel better and help them understand the positions that we want. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I love, I love, I mean, we, it's, that's always one of the trickiest things. Like when you're teaching the single leg deadlift Yeah. for folks who they struggle with keeping like their pelvis in, in line. And like you said, it was stacked over the, their positions and stuff. That's one of the hardest things. Do you ever work like those, I don't know, squat university calls them hip airplanes where he kind of has them go into external rotation, then rotate back into internal rotation and just trying to like feel like what their pelvis is trying to do and, and be able to control that? Yeah, absolutely. I'll do that. And then the, the way that we teach everybody the single leg deadlift is that cross-reaching variation. So what, sure. I'll, what I'll have them do is line the leg that they're standing on up with a cone, right? And then they're going to reach with their opposite arm across their body and touch the cone. So just by nature of doing that correctly, they pull themselves over into that hip. And I'll For cue sure. them on that free leg to turn that toe down and in and think about pulling that hip towards the floor um, and, and cue it that way so that, you know, they're in that position. And the same thing with a split squat, I'll ask them to kind of bias a little rotation towards that side again so they can use their glute muscles and their hip muscles and their adductors as effectively as possible. And you, when they do it, they'll be like, oh, my God, like I'm doing a single uh, split squat and I can feel my adductor and I can feel my lateral hip. Whereas if you open up the other way, you don't. Right. And it just kind of goes to drive the point home that like muscles work based on the positions we put them in. Right. And if we're not in good positions, if we're not cueing people, well, we're just not going to get everything we want out of that exercise from a planar standpoint or from a muscular uh, recruitment standpoint. Yeah. I think that's, that's a huge point to kind of drive home is that yes, you can. This is why like the online training, I love it. And I think that it has a place, but if you're not there to coach somebody, yes, you can squat and with intent or you can squat just, and you could just squat and then you're not going to get as much benefit out of that movement without that purposeful intent or focus from a coach who's giving you that kind of feedback to allow you to be like, okay, let's change this by a few degrees and let's see your foot turned in. Let's see you driving through, you know, the ball of your big toe or so on. And like little cues that, you know, you know, from doing it for a lot of years that you can make and make a big difference in how somebody moves and how they feel it, where some of it gets lost. If you're just going to the gym by yourself, or if you're going following an online program where you're just like, Oh, I'm just going to squat or I'm just going to deadlift or I'm just going to do this, but you don't have those intricacies that are worked out in your own movement patterns without that feedback. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, you, you can't do that over the internet as much as you want uh, to be able to communicate and see and give initial feedback. It, it, it can't, you can't, it's hard to replicate that anyway, but with in-person coaching. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think the, the last part of this that we're going to, we're going to touch upon is, you know, you guys have always been like anti anti-core or anti extension or anti, however you want to classify anti-core kind of, with the model in what you do, which limits like the lumbar flexion and extension and all those different positions that you see in traditional kind of core exercises, like okay. a sit up or a Russian twist or, you know, these different higher dynamic movements that they see now in like CrossFit where people are doing these high volume extension flexion movements, like kipping off a bar and things like that. And just talk about like why you fought, you guys have found that this like anti core has been way better for you guys in terms of, you know, overall general health in performance and this, that movement to away, away from those 
movements that gets you through that flexion extension positions? Yeah, I mean, first off, I find most people, especially gen pop to come in, just don't know how to create stiffness or resist torque well, right? It's either very upper body dominant or lower body dominant. They don't understand how to like brace and create stiffness. And obviously, that's a valuable uh, skill to have when you're lifting weights. But then also when you think about sports and you think about life, there's very it's not very often that we're repeatedly crunching or twisting. We're usually using our torso musculature, whether it's the abdominals in the front or some of our uh, paraspinals or our pelvic floor, or at, at that whole kind of torso musculature, I would say not just the front, but the whole thing to create stiffness and transfer force from the ground to our hands. If you think about any sporting movement, like swinging a baseball bat, um, swinging a golf club, it, we, people always think, oh, you got to do a lot of rotational work where you're really kind of twisting your rib cage on a fixed pelvis or you know something like that, where that doesn't really happen. We're typically pushing from the ground, creating stiffness in the midsection, and then transferring it to our hands to swing a bat, throw a, throw a punch, swing a racket, whatever it might be. Um, and so our, our core is kind of is the buzzword, right? But it tends to work. Your muscles tend to work as like eccentric and isometric stabilizers and controllers of motion, more so than repeated concentric muscles. And so, again, I'm just looking for greater carryover to whatever the end activity is. So whether that's, you know, a woman picking up her kid to go put in a high chair, right, or one of my athletes taking a slap shot, I'm looking for exercises that are going to translate better. And I think things like anti-rotation or things like anti-extension tend to recruit the muscles in a way that reflects more on whatever the end goal activity is. And people also just tend to feel better than repeatedly flexing or rotating a joint. I don't know. Sam and I did some body saws yesterday. Yeah, that's true. Are you sore? You're sore? Yeah, I'm pretty sore today. Yeah, my abs are real sore. So, yeah, but you know what? Your back isn't. So that's what I'm happy. No, my back isn't. So good. My abs are pretty darn sore. I haven't done them in a while. Like we usually do them, but we were we were doing pretty we were doing pretty slow, like five second eccentrics, and going pretty far into it, and yeah. it was pretty tough. So yeah, like that's when, when Kevin's talking about, you know, limiting extension. So that's that, that big arch of your lower back and rot rotation is obviously that rotation of your spine. So when we're doing a lot of things, even though golf may look like, or baseball may look like a rotational sport, yet your lower back is rotating. It's actually not like most of it's coming from your hips. Like we talked about that internal rotation. And then you have that, you said, you know, most of the time, if they have problems with their, their lower back, they have that disassociation from their, their hips. Right. So then the, the things are moving a little bit improperly. And then you have a rotation from your thoracic spine, which is the middle part of your spine. So you're not really actually supposed to be rotating that much from your lower back. If you are, that's when those overuse things kind of come out and they, they look like pain and discomfort over time. Yeah. Like a presentation I did go with the book. I've done this one a lot recently and I have this picture, all these pictures of these baseball players, golfers, and I have Mike Tyson punching in every single one you see hips and lumbar spine, like everything's moving together. If you think about someone hitting, like you wouldn't want them to be completely separated from where the force is coming from. You're pushing through the ground. And so you need to create stiffness in the middle to be able to transfer that towards whatever is imparting the force, like your hands in most sports. So yeah, it's, it's the, uh, this idea that we want to create high amounts of rotation through the torso doesn't really stack up and transfer to improve sports performance. We want to see that we're able to reflexively create stiffness and control it. That doesn't mean nothing moves. Clearly everything that uh, our spine moves, but it's about being able to control that motion under high amounts of force so that we can end up putting that force where we want it to go. And, and that's why this like anti-rotation, anti-extension stuff tends to work really well 
in, in that context. Yeah. And I think if, if Mike Tyson wasn't using all that, he wouldn't be hitting like a Mack truck. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a, a high genetic component with him that, uh, yeah. that we can't replicate, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, it's just funny you're talking about these different rotations and different things and like, yeah, it's, it's all supposed to work together. And, you know, talking to another athlete this morning, I had a phys ed class and he was like, yeah, you know, he's like, I got to do more calf raises. And I said, why? He's like, cause I want to try to dunk. And I was like, all right, so like lock your legs out and let's see how high you can jump with just using your, you know, like your, your calves and see what you can do. He's like, I can't jump like that. I'm like, exactly. You got to work like a whole bunch of stuff to be able to jump higher. You're not just going to work your calf raises and, and try to jump. Everything works in unison. It's not just one piece of the puzzle. Yes, that might be one thing we work on to help you maybe increase your jumping and loading and different things like that. But there's a lot more to it than just working some calf raises. Yeah. Remember, uh, I, I almost, well, I always wanted to like buy those jump sole things when I was a kid oh, yeah, and I, I wanted to that. jump higher thinking like, Hey, if I put those things on my shoes and I go jump a bunch and play basketball, uh, I'll be able to dunk. And uh, that wouldn't have done it for me. And I probably just would have had uh, really, really sore calves. <laughs> yeah. Sore calves, maybe tore your Achilles. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Those things are crazy. And it's crazy because they used to promote them as like, Oh, increase your vertical by six to 12 inches with one in one summer. What yeah. a promotional marketing tactic that is for a high school kid. Like, gonna, I want to dunk, man. Yeah, I want to dunk. Exactly. Why do shoes? Awesome. Anything that we didn't touch upon that you want to talk about or ladies you want to chat about? Tori's been, Tori just came from golfing. She was hitting at the driving range with her dad. Nice. Yeah. I'm not that good though. So just... <laughs> well, hopefully some of that internal mm. rotation talk and when her dad complains about low back pain later from hitting the golf club a hundred times. doesn't stop. So yeah. <laughs> Anything, Sam, come from the athlete perspective? I think that I, I had a situation actually just the other day when I was working out with Anthony where I was doing a squat cycle and I moved to unilateral. I, we did front foot elevated split squats and it's been two days and I feel my hips feel so much better. Another aspect of that too is Anthony, like if you weren't there to coach me through that and to put me in the right positions, like it would have been, I wouldn't have been doing it the proper way. So it makes it definitely like listen to your body. I know having a coach is so important and I'm a coach myself, but it having someone there to, to walk you through it and to, like I said, put you in these positions is huge. Yeah. Do you guys coach each other? Coach, coach, I'll say coaches need coaches. Yeah. yeah mm -hmm. I was just writing a problem, writing a program for one of the other coaches here right now. And like we all, lots of times we all train together and we'll all yeah. kind of like work on certain things together. So like heading into the summer, a lot of us will just dive right into the and do the athlete program. I think it's important that we all try to do what we're doing collectively in the gym, so we have an understanding of what we're giving to the athletes or giving to the. Adults. That's kind of like your meat and potatoes at, at Mike Bush and the conditioning. Is that like the athlete program, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, this time of the year, heading into the summer, it, it becomes the majority of our clientele. But then the rest of the year, it's probably a little bit more slanted towards the adults, right? So, but I think it's important, like if you're going to program something that mm -hmm. you do it. So uh, uh, we try to follow the program and we'll coach each other up. And it's important because uh, we all have biases and tendencies, even if we're coaches, we're not going to do the things we don't want to do. We're not going to work as hard on the things we don't want to do. So having someone to keep you accountable and to give you feedback is really important. Yeah. And Sam and I were doing the front foot elevated, the knees over toes version, mm -hmm. just to yeah. loosen up our hips a little bit. I know we, we were talking on the, on the forum at strengthcoach.com. Like we had had a little I was talking to you and Mike about it and just yeah. the differences. We do use it a little bit. And I, yeah, I think yeah. for that, 
I think for the mobility part of it, it's mm-hmm. almost you know, like a great, if you're, like she said, like if you're coaching it upright and we were using a pretty high box, so you're not flat ground, you know, mm-hmm. we were using, I think a, a six or eight, 10 inch box in the front to give you a little bit more, a little bit more range and ability. So you're not so in a full split and allowing you to kind of get yourself in some hip extension and stuff there where she's, she has a little. Yeah. I was externally rotating. She has some biases in her hip, hip extension. So. Yeah. Well, and like any tool or any exercise, I say nothing is really inherently bad. It's a matter of where are we trying to get to? Mm -hmm. And so one thing I always stress with our, with my book and my presentation is like, I'm not saying that, you should never squat or you should never do isolated work or you should never do the knees over toes or whatever it is. Right. And the the thing I want to see out of personal trainers and strength conditioning coaches is more thought of purpose or what the desired outcome is of selecting an exercise. Right. And so like you just told me what the desired outcome was for that training choice. And that's the point. And so my thought is always like, in the book, I tried to give people what I think the majority of people need, probably 80% of the people stepping into a gym, either it's a gen pop sure. client or an athlete. And there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. And what I always ask our coaches to do is say, hey, defend your program. Tell me why you made that choice. And if you can always say, hey, that's why that X is in here or Y is in here, then that's that's the whole point. Okay. I think as an industry, if we can move towards that, then we'll be in a much better place. Love it. Love it. So if people want to hang out and... and- hear more from you and, and all you're pretty, you have, you have multiple, which one did you post on movement as medicine or does, who, who does that one? Do you both do? I post on movement as medicine. Yeah. Okay. And you also have your own. Yeah. I have my personal one and, and I post some training stuff on there, but I try to put everything on movement as medicine just cause there's a bigger audience there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would get at movement as medicine on Instagram. It's probably the best place for uh, training content and at certified FSC for, for educational stuff with a uh, certified functional strength coach. Any, any closing words here before we, we get, we get going here? We're right about an hour, which we kind of keep these to an hour. You know, we're, we're busy. We want to get, get, get you back to doing your day to day, helping people feel better and move better. So any closing remarks? Yeah. Well, I mean, I just appreciate you taking the time to have me on here. I always like to, to get and talk to people about training and, and this was a good, very training center conversation, which isn't always like that. So I appreciate you, you doing this. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for hanging out. And uh, hopefully we'll we'll catch up soon. I know I've been trying to get back out there, but with COVID and everything going on, who knows when things... Do, have you heard anything about uh, like future presentations, like in-person stuff that anyone's doing? Uh, nothing much. We have some CFSEs coming up over the next year, finally on the road. So we'll be back traveling and teaching in person, but no big summits this year. It doesn't sound like till probably next year. So hopefully, but it'd be nice to get to see some familiar faces again sometime soon. Awesome. Awesome. Well, until then, we'll see you next time. And thanks again for hanging out for another episode of the Prime Podcast, where we do everything to help you find your prime. If you enjoy these episodes, remember to give us some love and show us some love on our podcast channels. You can subscribe for get the latest episodes. Leave us a review. Give us a rating. Do whatever you'd like. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Prime Movement. No vowels in there. You can follow myself at A Mercurio. Follow Kevin at Kevin Carr with two R's and as well as at Movement as Medicine. We'll see you next time and have a wonderful day. Said I'm at my prime.